Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. It is a, a joy and an honor and a privilege to be with you uh, this morning. Several months ago, I was in a meeting with the mayor of Fort Collins and the city planner of Fort Collins and several other pastors in the room. And honestly, we got the mayor and uh, uh, the city planner in the room to, to pray for them. And one of the other pastors uh, looked at the mayor and said, Mayor, what keeps you up at night? Because that's what I want to pray for for our city. Well, I, I began thinking in, in that moment, Zach, what keeps you up at night? Here's the truth. Absolutely nothing. God gave me very few gifts, but one of the gifts he gave me was sleep. Um, I think someone could break into our house. I could run them out of the house with a shotgun. Jennifer would be like, hey, we should call the cops. And I'd be like, no, they're not coming back. We'll just call the cops in the morning, let's go back to sleep, and I could go right back to sleep. Anytime, any place, anywhere, I can sleep. Daniel slept in a lion's den, Peter slept in prisons, Jesus slept during the storm, Zach can sleep anywhere. But here's what happens to me. I don't sleep long, I only sleep four or five hours, six hours on a good night, and my brain wakes me up. And so the, I have to rephrase the question, not what keeps me up at night. What do, I, what do I wake up thinking about? What, what is on my mind and my heart? What wakes me up? What stirs my very inner soul? What is it? I'm going to tell you, more times than not, discipleship, my disciples, what it means to make disciples, what it means to send disciples, wakes me up. But not in a way that's like, hey, programmatically, or what can our church do to create this movement or environment? No, I think about people. I think about my, my one or my three, the people who, who don't know yet Jesus that I'm praying will come to know Jesus. And how will they be matured in the faith? How will their walk with Christ develop? I think about a young man named Kyle Hancock, who, who's a Ph.D. student at Colorado State University where we are, but I was first his sixth grade youth pastor, and I've discipled him ever since. I think about the Lord's hand on his life, and I think where, where this comes from for us in the church as we think through discipleship, it's, it's the Great Commission. It comes from, from Matthew 28, which is in a lot of ways uh, our missional directive for the church. And you know it, and I know it, but let's just go ahead and read it right now. And, and um, here's what he said. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And I think if we're going to talk about sending disciples to the neighbors and to the nations, we first have to make sure that we have a very clear understanding in what it means to make disciples. Because here's the truth. You can't send what you don't make. And you can't replicate what you don't imitate. It's true. 
your children are not going to be followers of Jesus if you're not first following Jesus. Not on your account, maybe on somebody else's account, but not on your account. And so this morning, our our main text that I want to get into, our main text that I think will help us this morning as we think about what it means to make a disciple so that we can send them to our neighbors and our nations, is in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be reading in verses 21 uh, through 28. So I invite you uh, to read along, to disengage your brain from what else is going on. And to focus right here and hone in right here on Jesus' words to us through his disciple Matthew. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, when we talk about the word disciple, if, if, if you, were to, you were to go to work tomorrow morning, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bring up that word, or Monday morning, my bad. Let's say middle of the week, better day. Somebody said, hey, what are, what, what are you about? What are you into? And you said, man, I'm, I'm about sending disciples. That's my, that's my passion. More than likely, your coworker would be like, oh, I don't know what he's talking about, and he'd move on. Because the term disciple really isn't used outside of the church. Now, it originated, um, we, we see it in the Bible as early as Isaiah. We see, uh, in, in, as we study history, we see that it, it was pre-existed uh, before um, Jesus' ministry on earth. As a matter of fact, Plato, uh, he, he had a disciple, Aristotle. Disciple sim- simply means learner or follower. But you see, after Jesus came with his disciples, Jesus kind of, in a lot of ways, hijacked the term. And so disciples really came about that term disciple. We don't really use it as learner or follower anymore. We use it as Jesus follower. And so Um, As we even talk about the big truth this morning, this is what it's going to show for us. Here's what I do, though. I want to put this for us in a definition that would uh, sum up for us what it means to really follow Jesus. What it really means to be a disciple. 
When you look in, when you look in all of the Bible and you were to, to, to put together the New Testament and you were to, to put together a definition of, of what it means to be a disciple, I think this definition would work. Now, this would be a disciple in their maturity, okay? Not a, not a young disciple, not, a, not a, a, a person who's just come to faith and is following Jesus, but a mature disciple. A disciple is a radical, reproducing, lifelong follower of Christ. As we're going to see, this text is going to kind of unpack that for us. But a disciple is a radical, reproducing, lifelong follower of Christ. My favorite disciple is probably... Peter. I just think he's the most fun. If I got to hang out with a disciple, I probably want to hang out with, with Peter. Matter of fact, my college pastor, his name's Buddy, he's kind of like a Peter. I mean, the sucker will jump off the boat and try to walk on water. Yeah, it's fun to be around. Well, earlier in Matthew chapter 16 that we're going to read about, Jesus is asking, who, who do people say that I am? And they, the disciples answer, they say, well, maybe you're this person, this person, maybe you're Elijah, whatever. He looks at him and he says, but who do you say that I am? And, and Peter's got the answer. He's like, I say you're the son of God. And, and Jesus is like, but boom, you're right, Peter. And on uh, you, this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. It seems as if Peter gets it. But just a little bit down in that text as this story is going, Jesus begins to tell him that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem and he's going to have to suffer many things from, from the... Uh, Jewish elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised on the third day and Peter loses his mind. Oh, no, no, no. May it never be. It can't be. You, they, can't, they can't kill you. You're, you're talking nonsense. This can't be. And then Jesus just gives a stunning rebuke. He looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Now, maybe we should try this next time somebody at work or friend gets in our way. Get behind me, Satan. I just don't think we should say that to our wives. <laughs> I think it's going to end well. So here's the first point I want to make. A disciple's mind is on the things of God. A disciple's mind is on the things of God. Get behind me, Satan. You're a, you're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter wasn't seeing the world in that moment through a heavenly lens, through a, a kingdom lens. But the disciple, he sees the world through heavenly lenses. He's, he's looking out and not seeing the world as the world sees the world. He's looking out and he's seeing the world as Jesus sees the world. A disciple looks at the word of God and doesn't interpret the scriptures, doesn't interpret the Bible to bring blessings to this life. That, that's where Peter's mind was, was in this world, in this life. No. A disciple, he looks at the scriptures and he interprets the scriptures to see that the blessing isn't in this life, but the next one. It's the one to come. You see, Peter didn't get to take death off the table. 
Peter didn't get to, get, get to look and see what it means to, to follow Christ and to think that just means following Christ will mean this world is a better place for me. Didn't look at it and say this world will be more comfortable for me. He did not get to take death off the table. Jesus was going to die on a cross. He was going to be the atonement for our sin. The punishment that we deserved. The debt that we owed but we could not pay. That Jesus was going to take our punishment. That he was going to atone for our sins. That he was going to pay the debt that he did not owe by paying the price that we could not pay. And it happened. It came true. He was crucified on the cross. He was dead. It wasn't just that he was unconscious or that his spirit appeared dead. No, he was dead. His heart stopped beating. His brain stopped working. Rigor mortis would have set into his body and his body would have become stiff. His body would have started to stink. But on the third day, just as he prophesied and the scriptures prophesied, his mind started working and his heart started beating and his blood started flowing back through his veins. And the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who was and is and is to come, got up and he walked out of the grave. Peter didn't get to take that death off the table because Jesus said, like, if they did that to me, what are they going to do to you? And here's the truth. All but one of his disciples were martyred. The one who wasn't was John. He was banished to an island. And so Peter didn't get to take death off the table. Here's the truth. Here's another big idea. Disciple lives a life of self-denial. That's the disciple's life. It's a life of self-denial. In a world that is about self-care, Christianity is all about self-denial. You know, in, in our world today, in popular culture today, and, and, and within the, with the church, both, both things are true. There's a lot of, of talk about self-care. A lot of this is because of mental mental illness and anxiety and things like that, that we, we've really got to take care of ourselves. We just need to, uh, to take our time away. We need to, to rest. And I want you to understand real clear what this is. This is nothing more for our culture than an idolatry pendulum swing. You see, we're over here, and we're going... Oh, we've got to have the best house. We've got to have the best car. We've got to have our kids in private education. We've got to have this. We've got to have that. We've got to have this. We've got to have that. And it just all mounts up. And as we run the rat race, and as we work seven days a week, and we, we invest in our 401Ks and our Roth IRAs, and we do all these things, this mounting pressure ha- has built up on American culture. And we're losing our minds And so what's happened as a culture, as a whole, is they're swinging over here and saying, no, we've got to have self-care. We've got to take care of ourselves. 
Therefore, you don't need to work seven days a week. You do need time off. You need the manny. You need the petty. You need the counseling. You need, you need the hot whatever therapy. It's nothing more than, a, than an idolatry pendulum swing from, from going, okay, these are all the things I want of all the way over here is I've got I've to worship self because I've run myself ragged. Now, I want you to hear me very clear because, man, Christianity, Jesus was so far ahead of this. It's amazing what the Bible teaches, isn't it? That I don't know, maybe that there should be a Sabbath day rest. Meditation, good thing. We do it in the mornings, like fill our cup up so we can pour ourselves out. It's called a quiet time. Like we read the Bible. We rest. In Christianity, we know that the the world doesn't depend on how awesome we are. And so we can rest in the, the goodness of our God and the goodness of our, our kingdom, the, his, his kingdom. We can rest in him. Here's the truth. When someone says, just got to take care of myself, do you know what you call that? Selfish. Imagine this. This is, this is a scenario that I'm sure happens 50 times within this church body. 50 times a day. You got a mom at home, three little kids running around. She worked hard all day. She's frazzled. Wouldn't you be? I would be. My wife was gone for two days. When I got to the airport and I got the kids to her, I was like, they made it. They're alive. I did it. You know, I, I get it. Dad comes home from work. Dad's had a hard day. Comes home, looks at his wife and his kids, and goes, hey, I don't have time for you. I just need some self-care. I need to, I need to, I'm going to go up the room. I'll be out in an hour. You think mom and kids are going to respond well to that? No, dad, you don't need self-care. You need to care for your family. Because a disciple has to live a life of self-denial. Taking care of the body, taking care of Sabbath rest. They're important. Get up early in the morning and do it. Do what you have to to do. Have a quiet time. Spend times in the scripture. Absolutely. But fathers, when you come home and it's time for you to be with your kids and disciple your families, it's time to deny yourself and do it. Here's the truth. Disciples serve. Disciples, uh, they're they're lovers. Jesus was a, a lover. God so loved us, right, that he gave us his son. This is what it means that God loves. It means that God eternally gives over and over and over of ourselves. And so to, to be a disciple means that you're a, a giver. And to give means you have to deny yourself. The, I think the things that he's saying when he says, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. You're going to have to deny your passions and your wants and your desires. And you're going to have to lay them aside. I love to hunt. I'm a hunter. I used to live in Kentucky and um, I used to run trail cameras and I'd chase big whitetail bucks and sometimes I would just get fixated on a buck. I would just think, I'm going to kill that one. That's mine. I want them. And after a few weeks of chasing him I have to look at my family and go you know what that may be what I want but I've got to deny that 
and I need to follow. I've got to balance this out. I've got to, I've got to hold this in, in, in view of what is important so that I can serve my family, that I can give my, to my family. There's other things that I, I would have to, sinful, truly sinful desires that I have to deny myself of in order to be a disciple and follow Jesus because a disciple lives a crucified life. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That means that we put to death what is earthly in us. That means that when we follow Jesus, when we're a, a Jesus follower, we're putting to death the things of the world. We're crucifying it. We are killing it. We're not like tempering it. We're not softening it. We're not balancing it. We're killing it. We're putting to death, therefore, what is earthly in us in order to follow Jesus. It doesn't happen apart from repentance, from the turning of the things of the world and running to Jesus. Not only do you not get to take death off the table, you don't get to take death off of your passions and your loves and your desires off the table. A disciple lives a crucified life. But also, here's the truth, and we see this clearly in the text. A disciple follows Jesus in all things. We follow the example that he had. We imitate Christ. Paul said, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. So this is what we do. We follow Jesus in all things. You see, we can use disciple in a couple different ways. If I say I am a disciple, that's a noun, right? That's, that's, that's stating an identity of who I am. I am a disciple. But I can also use it as a verb because it's not just a noun, it's a verb. I'm going to disciple my children. Used in that way, it would be a verb. It is an action. Jesus made disciples. So here's some bonus stuff that I'm just going to throw at you. Disciples know, practice, and teach the disciplines of a Christian life. A mature believer knows, practices, and teaches the disciplines of a Christian life. You know the things that Jesus taught. You know the ethic and the morals and the ways of life that he taught. But greater than that, you've got a faith that is in Christ. You know Jesus. You know who he is. You have him in your heart. When it says, in, when Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That means that your identity is dead, and now your identity is in Jesus. It's in Christ. 
The next thing I'll say is this, that disciples make disciples. I know that you hear that in this church. Disciples make disciples. Now listen, this is both caught and taught. It's, it's both and. Now, if I ask the room in a room this size who has been discipled, good, good many of you would raise your hand, but some of you would not. If I said, who is discipling somebody, actively discipling somebody, probably less would raise their hand. But the excuse would be, I haven't been discipled. Well, that's only kind of true. That would only mean that maybe someone's never sat down with you and walked through the Bible with you. But at the same time, you should be able to catch what is going on around you because discipleship is happening around you. You can catch it. It is both caught and taught. It is by modeling what it looks like, but also taking the time to teach what it looks like. When I was in middle school, there was a man named Harris Presley uh, who hired me to sand furniture in his wood shop. Uh, I was probably underage, and he definitely paid me cash under the table, Um, but that's what I did. Now, here's what I figured out years later. He didn't need me to sand furniture, and I re- he probably had to go back over a lot of my work. What I figured out was that he wanted to invest in me. So we would run errands into town. We would go pick up lumber, and we'd, he'd have a sermon on the radio. And he would say, well, what do you think about that? And what do you think about that? For years, Harris actually invested in me, loved me. When I was kind of running from Jesus, when I was running Running from the church, he would come and put his arm around me and say, I love you, son. I know what you're up to. Come back home. He loved me. And you know what happened? One day, years later, when the Lord disciplines those he loves, and I got, I got taken to the woodshed, I got ready to come back to Jesus. Do you know who was there waiting on me with open arms? Who began to pour into me and disciple me? Well, you know that Harris didn't even have a high school education. He wasn't discipled in a church. He didn't have anybody sit down with him. He just read God's word, caught what was there, and then taught it to me. Disciples make disciples. If you're following Jesus, you're going to bring others with you. You're going to make others come along and follow along with you. Disciples make disciples. Discipleship is a lifestyle for a lifetime. This isn't something that we do. We do once and we say, boom, we're done. It's done. We've discipled. No. It's a lifestyle and it lasts a lifetime. It means we're, we're constantly looking to see who is the Lord? How is the Lord working around me? Who is he drawing unto himself? And how can I be a part of it? As you pray in the morning, God, who can I share the gospel with today? Say the second prayer to say, and who can I invest in as a follower of you today? Discipleship is a lifestyle for a lifetime. And I'll say this, we've got a, it's, it's like one of these things where we're always striving but never arriving. I don't know if anybody in this room would say, man, I'm totally sanctified. I have, I have 
reached the place where uh, I'm, I don't sin anymore. It's awesome. And uh, no, you haven't. We're not there. So as disciples, it's, 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 it's always striving, never uh, arriving. We're always learning, always growing. We, can't, we will not, cannot learn enough about Jesus. And as we learn, as we pursue his word, then we're going to teach it to others. We disciple the next generation. It's part of what discipleship means. And when we look at Deuteronomy 6, and we see what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy, it's very clear that discipleship is generational, that the, the older generation teaches the younger and the younger and the younger, and you need to be a life stage ahead. But we disciple the next generation. And here's one thing I, I just think is true for Tri-Cities Baptist Church. When it comes to your children, you are without excuse. You're without excuse. The, the, there, there, there's no excuse and the accountability will be high because you have a resource in front of you called the FDP, the Family Discipleship Plan, in which they, they are paving a way for parents to disciple their children. Discipleship starts in the home among Christian bodies. Among Christian families, it starts in the home. And so we want to disciple the next generation. Some of you need to pray that God would give you a passion and burden for kids' ministry and middle school ministry and high school ministry. And I pray that God would put on some of your hearts ETSU and that that college campus would become your mission zone. The thing that you wake up and pray for. You know, in our church, we're on a college campus. We, we've, we've had people from Saudi Arabia and Iran and Oman and Nigeria and Tanzania and Bangladesh and India and China and Costa Rica and England. Matter of fact, there is a Muslim girl from Iran in our church nearly every Sunday. And there is a glow about her when I preach the gospel. And I believe the Lord is saving her. And that didn't happen by accident. That happened because we are targeting the next generation. And we also, we also are just acknowledging that God brought the nations to be our neighbor. And so the very places that I cannot go and preach the gospel, God has brought to that campus and I can preach it to them. And so we want to disciple the next generation. And the last thing I would say is that disciples follow Jesus to the ends of of the earth where God calls we go and as parents where God calls our children we bless them to go because we realize and we understand that the safest place for our children is to be directly in the center of God's will because that is the beautiful place for our children is that they're following Jesus even if it means death one day. So as, as, as look, we're going to talk about sending, sending disciples to the nations. Don't you dare say, I want to send a disciple to the nation if you're not willing to go to the nations yourself. If you're not willing to follow Jesus across the street to talk to your neighbor... Don't pretend like you care about the nations. We're going to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth, and it starts across the street. It starts with a neighbor. It starts with our neighborhood. 
we're going to follow Jesus. Disciples will follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. And this week, as we've, as a church, as you've prayed and you've, you've met with neighbors and you've had dinner with neighbors and you've prayed for the nations and you've, you've, you've prayed for, hey, what can I give to help go? What, what, can, what can I do? What can we do to reach these other countries? God, thank you for these missionaries that are here and there. Today, I would ask you, what is it that you are supposed to do in your next steps of obedience to Jesus? Is it a neighbor? Is it a family member? Is it a child? Is it a move to Denver to help plant the oaks? Whatever's next as you plan, is it, is it you know what, I'm going to, no, the, the hearts are headed to India, and man, I think I've got a heart for that too. What is it? So this morning, I'm, I'm inviting the band back up. I'm going to invite the church to respond. And in our response, to lay it on the table to say, am I willing to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth? Am I radical? I, I, gave, I gave the definition in, in talking about a disciple as a radical I want you to look around at Christianity around us. Is much of it very radical? Were the followers of Jesus radical? Did they just drop it all to follow? When Jesus said, hey, let the dead bury the dead, did they go, okay, I'm going to go home and bury dad. See you in 10 years after he dies. No, they dropped what they were doing and they followed Jesus. But when the rich young ruler came and said, hey, he said, take everything you have and sell to the poor and come and follow me, what'd he do? He wasn't radical. He was normal. Disciples are radical. So ask yourself, am I radical? Am I willing to, to lay it all down to take the gospel, to, to send disciples to the neighbors and to the nations? Am I reproducing? Am I reproducing myself? Am I imitating my walk with Christ in such a way that it's replicated and other disciples are being made? Ask that question to yourself. Man, am I a lifelong follower of Christ, since, since the point that I repented and I said yes to Jesus, am I following Christ? And so today, let's be disciples, let's stand up and let's sing and let's commit in this moment to be radical, reproducing, lifelong followers of Christ. Let's put it all on the line this morning. I know there's going to be pastors out in the foyer. There's going to be pastors that would love to get coffee or chat with you about your next steps this week. In this moment, pray with a friend. Come pray with me. Do what you need to do to respond to Jesus' command to go, therefore, to the nations. Make disciples. Let's send disciples. Let's stand. Father, we love you and we thank you that you have called us by grace through faith, into a relationship with you, that we get to follow you and walk with you. And that it is better than anything the world has to offer. Lord, I know that in the moment that we place our faith and trust in you, it seems like we are making a sacrifice when we crucify ourselves. But Lord, on the other end, we look back and we go, oh, but grace, what unmerited favor it is that you would love a sinner and you would save us. God, would you move and work? Would you do what only you can do in this congregation? Give us hearts of obedience for you. In Jesus' name.